Unconscious Bias Project. Hey everybody, we have a absolute gem of a podcast in store for you today. We talked about parenting, writing books, how to make change, a lot of journeys. <laughs> Trust me, this is a journey-themed podcast. Um, we talked about feminism. We talked about um, what it means to be an activist, what it means to speak up, what it means to to not speak up when you're overtaxed and, and you can't, and um, how important it is to blend anger and love in change and to always, always maintain hope. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. Hola a todos. Lynette here. And Alexis. Your co-hosts, both she, her, bringing you impactful stories and interviews from our communities to you and exploring how we can support each other. As always, we want to acknowledge that the Unconscious Bias Project is based in the San Francisco Bay Area in California, and that means it is on unceded ancestral homeland belonging to the Ramaytush Ohlone and Muwekma Ohlone peoples some of whom speak the language Chenyo. So we encourage you to learn more about the Ohlone people on our website and the podcast links. And yay, we'd like to welcome today Virginia Mendez, pronouns she, her. Virginia is the author of Childhood Unlimited, Parenting Beyond the Gender Bias, and the series of children's books, Mika and Lolo. She's a public speaker and co-founder of The Feminist Shop, an ethical brand that educates on the topic of feminism. She is very passionate about gender equality and turn her skills and industry towards challenging kids and adults to unlearn constrictive stereotypes. She has received accolades, including being listed as one of the 145 inspiring women leaders of 2020 by Diverse in Global Land, and has received recognition for her company on Top 100 UK and Entrepreneur 2020. So welcome, Virginia. Well, um, thanks for having me. Very excited. Yeah, we're excited to have you. To get us started, I wanted to ask, you know, I, I obviously have opened your website. I researched it. Um, <laughs> so on your website, you say that not that long ago, you refused to identify as a feminist, yet now you're running the feminist shop. You have like, you know, thousands of people on your newsletter, um, you're getting press, you're getting recognition. Can you tell us about that journey from saying, I refuse to identify as a feminist to, you know, identifying so strongly with feminism? And I appreciate that you said, um, I used to identify because when I used to tell this story, I said I was not a feminist. And then somebody corrected me and said, well, you were, you just refused to identify as such because you didn't understand what feminist was. And I thought that was one one great correction so I try to go with it because I think that that's part of the story itself and I think a lot of the people that refuse to call themselves feminists do it because they don't understand and the world is still very stigmatized and they feel like you know calling yourself feminist means that you have to accept a blanket you know a lot a list of things that you may not agree with all of them and so I was one of those, I thought feminist was victimizing women. I was going to be very ambitious. I didn't need it. Um, and I was disagreeing with a lot of the policies that some of the feminists were doing. Funny enough, things that now I fully agree on, but I maybe wasn't ready back then. But still, I think I was a feminist. I always was feisty and I always agreed that we all deserve the same rights and you know it's in the benefit for the whole society that we have real equality and opportunities but yeah it was my father-in-law who we were arguing one and he said well arguing we were discussing and he said well of course you're a feminist Virginia everybody decent is so I decided I was going to prove him wrong and I started doing some proper researching and the more I learned I was like oh, well I guess I agree on that I start doing this thing of um, what I call now being an apologetic feminist, which is that, okay, I'm a feminist, but I don't believe in this or this or this. But that, I guess that opened a door for me to start learning. And my feeling is that the more you learn, the more you care. And the more you care, the more you want to learn. So it's almost like um, 
you know, vicious circle or of wanting to, you know, raise awareness and, and you start seeing things from other perspective, even things that I wasn't ready to accept when I guess I started this journey around 10 years ago or 12 years ago. Now I'm like, yeah, I could see myself protesting <laughs> with no bra in front of a city hall. Why not? Um, so yeah, it is, it is a journey. And I don't think my journey is very dissimilar for a lot of people. I think it always comes with those little, um, you start being aware about certain things and then you start getting the pieces of the puzzle together. And you're like, oh, well, so not only this is bad, but this is somehow linked to this and to this. And then just start seeing things from a, you know, different perspective and lenses. And I'm also curious um, what that's like in Spain, in Ireland. I know that, for instance, there seems to be a stronger element in the UK, at least as opposed to America, that feminism in the UK seems to have a much stronger turf strain, anti-trans strain. I don't know what your experience is with that in Spain or Ireland, and I'm curious if that's affected that journey at all. I My journey as a feminist was probably mm, the stronger it got was I was already living here in Belfast, and Belfast is Northern Ireland, which is UK. So I guess most of my feminist awakening and radicalization <laughs> i'm gonna say although obviously i follow a lot um spanish and and because it's northern ireland is very interesting with um with the rest of the island um but yeah it's it's quite a strong i'm finding there is a big debate northern ireland in particular is very uh, intersectional the the trans the trans community and the feminist community collaborate a lot together and there is a very strong narrative of your fight is my fight. And in the UK, I think it's much more broken and much more segmented thing. It's very sad to see because a lot of those women that are very transphobic, they are really great advocates and they are doing amazing work in other areas of families and somehow they are using so much energy in directing a campaign of hate, you know? So it's very difficult because you can't see the passion on for them into a lot of great things. You can see how driven they are about women issue. It's just that it's somehow, I feel like there is a lack of understanding or there is a lack of, you know, like I think there's a fear. Again, to me, a lot of the of these problems come out of fear that, they fought so hard into getting those rights and now they're going to be taken away or why do we have to share our piece of the pie? And it's like, no, I don't think there's enough pie for everybody. Actually, that's what the problem resides, I think. And when I've talked with some of them and I still have, I, I think as an ally, I, it's more my work to have those conversations maybe than some trans people because... I have more, you know, headspace and more emotional space to deal with it without being personally attacked. Whenever I've been talking as an ally and just like, look, what about this? And they always come back to, but by gender, if gender didn't exist, then, you know, all these problems, if we eradicate gender, a lot of the problems will disappear. But it's like, yeah, but you won't, you won't eradicate gender. The only way to effectively eradicate gender is by having a million genders if it makes sense then when gender feels like the people's homes whenever people can't because they're like well then there's a lot of gender so it's not only now woman and man it's like all these new things in the middle and it's like yeah that's how we win we win but making gender your home and what it feels right and what is your identity and not letting it be defined by what society expects you to be. I mean, that is the way we all win, that taking back that control of the narrative, which they, I think they feel like they're being erased. But I don't think there is a problem of erasure. I think nobody's taking away womanhood or sex issues or, you know, it's just being able to separate sex issues and gender issues and being able to include the trans community in both of those. 
it's very disheartening because um, we have the opportunity to collaborate and do great things together as you know, because they're fights that are necessarily part of the same nature. And there's so much energy and so much time directed in hate campaigns that it's just awful, really sad to see. Yeah, you said something back there about like, you know, just that's how we really get the the equality and, you know, ironically by multiplying gender so much and having so many options and also having options, more options within gender itself, right? By expanding, what does it mean to be a woman? By expanding, what does it mean to be a man, right? We get closer and closer to that next step where we get to not worry about gender again, if we can get that level of acceptance. 100%. And, and it's that feeling of accusing me the other day, like, why, why you never use the word sex? And I'm like, oh, I do. And I think there are sex problems. Like, for example, periods would be a sex problem. But trans men also suffer from sex-related, you know, issues. And you have gender problems, and then trans women are affected by them. I think no matter which angle you want to go with the traditional way to understand womanhood and, you know, feminists based on cis women, you have to include the trans, the trans community because they are also affected by it, trans men or trans women in whatever side you pick. And, and we can't leave them behind. I mean, especially because the trans community is one of the most activist. It's one like a lot of the, you know, historic advancements have happened because of trans activists. What does really infuriate me is that feeling of, is that how, you know, nobody has a lot of time. Nobody has a lot of energy. Is that how we want to direct our anger? Is this, you know, where, how we want to spend our time in, in Twitter or in, you know, social media? Is that what? really matters why are we not choosing love why are we not choosing compassion and there's people doing really harm to women at the moment any women or any person and why are we letting them off the hook because suddenly you know a trans girl won a swimming <laughs> competition like really is that what it's you know th are those the problems of the world that a trans girl has won a swimming competition in an university. I don't know. It feels very distracting. Mm -hmm. There was a politician out here who recently wrote a letter about vetoing a um, anti-trans bill. He ran some numbers in that letter and said, ultimately, we are talking about four girls at the college level who this bill would affect. Like, we really don't have other things to be spending our time on other than picking on four girls to make the entire trans community feel alienated and unloved? No, it's just that I think that's the key part that the whole community is like, this woman is not going to never read your tweets, but you know who's going to read it. A lot of trans people on social media that they're going to feel that hated is directly to them they're gonna feel that fear directed to them so is whenever we pick on one person or one issue and and we use that kind of level of hatred you know that hate just goes much longer into the whole community about the people that are in the verge the people are already dealing with a lot of internalized things like how is that helping so with all of this intersectionality in mind I'm curious what some of your misconceptions about feminism were and what that has brought you to for a definition of feminism and what that looks like to you. I, I don't think I really thought much. I think it was more like, to be honest, a passion rejection because we are taught to reject feminists. Um, we, are, we all want to be liked and especially the way we want to be like as women. And if I think about myself back then um, when I was young and it's um, very, you know, compliant and, you know, you can be feisty but within limits and, you know, being a man hater was a big thing. You still want to be validated. You still want to have that rational. Um, and, and they are the way they are 
show you know the and, and it's just funny because I think like now I have shaved pink hair and a tattoo <laughs> so he's like oh my god I've become the person who said I would never be it's true uh, but it doesn't have to be like I know a lot of families that look exactly as I looked when I was 23 and I was like with you know all the society ways but I don't know I think you have that feeling of they're too angry or they're irrational or they're hate men or you know they're just blaming they're not taking responsibility and they're blaming the system for things that you know they're lazy or or you know all that victim blaming that we have so internalized that but I think it was mostly a feeling as in uh, you get very obvious cues from the society that feminist is a way, I think, to reject, you know, like, oh, this is not what you do if you are, back then I was um, finishing my master's, about to get in a corporate job, and, you know, all that kind of, oh, you suits, you know, suits and women with heels and advancing your career and be ambitious. And, and it just feels that it was not, it's very easy to hate or to fear whenever you don't sit down and read about it properly and understand it properly. And, you know, it's, it's what they told us. So I don't know if I had any specific misconception, but, but I think I have been learning from what I was able to digest back then to where I am now. And I know that in five years, I will probably come back to this interview and be like, oh, wow, you had still loads to learn and unlearn. But I think it's making making peace with that journey of, oh, we all have a lot to unlearn and to relearn. Yeah, right. I mean, it's like I tell people, I'm like, I even still learn things about transness. Like, you know, 10 years ago, my knowledge of trans issues was not what it was five years ago, was not what it is today, is not going to be what it is in five years, in 10, you know, and I tell people, my kids, when I was teaching, they would teach me new things. They'd be like, oh yeah, well, you know, Tumblr is, you know, having a big conversation about X, Y, and Z. And I'm like, whoa, this is okay. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. I think that's the beauty of it. And I used to know exactly who I were and I was very proud of it. And I am very proud note of not knowing where, who I'm going to be, if that makes sense. Like, oh, I know exactly that the only thing I know by now is that, oh, this is all changing and it's learning fast. And who knows when people ask me, oh, are you vegan? I'm like, well, I'm not, but ask me in 18 months. <laughs> As in, I don't take any yes or no for granted. Like, I, I don't know where my learnings and my journey is going to bring me. And that excites me and that brings me joy. That's super cool. As somebody that I think similarly just wanted to like, I mean, for for me, my part of my journey was just wanting to fit in. I moved around so much. I just wanted to fit in. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be respected. I wanted to prove myself. And all of that came with control, like controlling what my future was going to be, controlling what the outcomes could be, controlling how other people could see me. And I similarly, as I'm, <laughs> as I continue to, uh, gain experience and experience, you know, learning from other people, learning from, you know, their day-to-day learning from this work that we do here at UVP. It's like, well, it's ever-changing and I think that's okay. I think that's okay. Like, yeah, letting, letting go of that, that control, that's, that's incredible. It is very powerful. So I'm curious how this journey from like, I don't identify as a feminist to like, oh, okay, this, this is something that I love. This is something I want to share. How did that intersect with the feminist shop? And I, I think if, um, if you could tell, you know, a non-feminist or maybe un, they don't know that they're a feminist yet, how would you describe the feminist shop to them? And how did you come to, to create the feminist shop? Well, I'm focusing on the feminist shop. So my first, I started trying to do this kind of more professional with my first book, Mika Lolo. Um, I wrote a book for children's about 
um, why gender stereotypes should not define who we are and, and inviting kids to challenge them intentionally. And then I thought I was going to focus on that very much. But then my husband and I were looking for presents for Christmas. And I was like, okay, I'm going to get everybody feminist gifts. And I couldn't find really any brand that I was like, oh, I cannot wait. It's Christmas. I cannot wait to get something from there. So we start kind of brainstorming in our sofa about how that would look like. He works in e-commerce. Um, so he always kind of wanted to try something for himself. Uh, so we try to recreate my own journey. So I wanted to make sure that in the family shop, there was something for each past versions of me. Um, we, ran, we created a test that described what type of feminist you are. So there's positive feminist, unapologetic, angry, not a feminist yet. Um, and we wanted to do something for all of them because it feels like um, there is a lot of you don't get to call yourself a feminist if you know, um, there's a lot of that sometimes within the movement, people almost believing or feeling that they own feminists and they get to tell who's a feminist and who's not. And I know that if somebody had told me that whenever I was just starting, I would be probably be put off by it. But we wanted to celebrate that this is a journey and where you are in the journey, it's about, you know, keep learning and celebrating where you are at the moment and what are you doing and what are you learning and what are you doing about it so obviously there is a shop we sell over 500 books and a lot of ethically produced apparel and gifts that start conversations and make statements because uh, we're big believers on the power of conversations but it's full of free resources and content so you know, we have different sections, the, the role of men in feminists, how to raise feminists, women and sex. And, and we interview a lot of different people and I write articles. And the idea is for it to be a hub as well and a place for people to feel their feminists and find out more. So things that you might not be ready yet to read or to agree with but there's something that you might be like okay this is a good starting point for me and now that I get it maybe I'm curious to know a little bit more or I want to find out more so yeah to us it was more like a celebration of values and something to wear with pride and something to you know just keep you curious and keep you learning but part of the same team rather than saying who's not doing it perfectly or you know who doesn't get to call themselves feminist so that kind of vibe of it would be much better if we could celebrate each other or challenge each other but as part of the same team like okay well we disagree on this part but you know we're both trying to achieve this thing you think this is the way to do it I think this is the other way you know let's challenge each other let's learn from each other so that is what we are trying to create in the family shop. So often the answer is actually both, right? It doesn't have to be like, oh, this is the right way. This is the wrong way, right? They can both often be the right way and have multiple avenues to the same goal. And, and I think people agree more than they disagree you know and i think it's just that we focus a lot on the things that we disagree and especially i think we've stopped listening to each other like we are and a lot of those topics in families are severely emotional they are because they are our own existence and they're our own experiences and our you know so i mean i'm saying this like i am i swear shout and scream at my husband like <laughs> five days a week I had to write I wrote an article about the whole Johnny Depp and Amber her trial because if he hurt me once more talking about it he was like can you just read about it and then just send me the link because we we are not able to talk about anything else because you keep bringing it back um but they are emotional topics uh, and it's about being able to have those conversations and you know just being able to be challenged and being able to 
agree sometimes disagree that's fine but just you know having that um that those conversations basically and those challenging points of views how i think one of the issues or you know maybe at least for me one of the misconceptions about what feminism could be is just talking about issues that women face like violence at home like you know being harassed on the street i remember um really clearly you know this one time in i was on vacation we we had a vacation we invited this is in in colombia we had invited you know all my aunts and and cousins um my dad's side we have a very large family <laughs> um and it was um and then we have a very strong matriarch on, on my dad's side of the family my mami olgi um everybody looks up to her and she's you know a a single parent right now and um you know she's at the head of the table and you know all my aunts and my cousins are around and some of the um uncles and my dad and uh and dude cousins are are sort of doing something else and um for some reason it becomes a conversation about sharing moments when we've been sexually harassed and it's always it was like you know one of first it started with you know getting um robbed in the bus and like public transit public transit in <laughs> Bogota is notoriously a great place to get um stuff stolen so you don't never wear real jewelry and um whatever you wear should be um easy to take off you know if it gets ripped off of your of your neck gosh i'm doing great press for colombia right now anyways um, <laughs> uh, so useful tips yeah so um so it starts ta- we start talking about oh yeah i remember when this this guy tried to grab my necklace but it was the necklace from my you know so and so so i was like no you know, take your hands off me and, and stop being malandra. And I hit him with this purse and, you know, whatever. And then, you know, somebody else told a story of, um, you know, some guy saying something to her and she turning, Oh, it was my grandma. She was like, I walked out of the store one time and this guy was like, Hey, cosa linda, mama sota, you know, like all, you know, obviously, uh, quote unquote compliments and um my grandma turns around and she's like so you know abuela like I'm a grandma and the guy was like shocked but you know and it was like oh it's because I have nice legs you know so it was it was like oh but it's a, it's a nice thing but it was kind of rude and then and then it continues to escalate you know with more and more stories until finally um my cousin and her mom tell the story of how they were um walking um down like a, a a like street stalls um selling stuff and um the mom notices two guys trailing behind her daughter and um and so she she like grabbed grabbed her her arm and she was like okay we're going to walk faster and they start walking faster and then she looks behind her and there's like four guys now that are like walking behind them and so I forget exactly what happened, but I think the AC said something like, you know, like get get the fuck away from my kid. And they both ran. And, you know, and the feeling in this conversation was like, oh yeah, you know, this is just something that happens. And we just like this is, you know, you have to take charge for yourself. Otherwise, you know, nobody's kind of come to your rescue. And my mom at some other point um had shared with me how some guy groped her ass in the middle of the street like she was just walking and some guy groped her ass and so she grabbed a bottle out of like a a street vendor's um you know like stand like like a coke bottle or something and like crashed it over the guy's head and the guy at the stand was like oh yeah that's fine and you know as like yeah, this this is just how we do. And she was like, you know, and this happened in front of a cop and the cop did nothing. And so, you know, but these are like precious moments that I remember of this. Like, I we never really talk about these issues. <laughs> but like, you know, we don't talk about um, 
verbal harassment, sexual harassment, or, you know, we don't talk about violence at home, or we don't talk about, um, you know, in the US, you can't get a sanitary pad without it being taxed. You know, you've, if, um, you know, if a bathroom has tampons, it's like, oh my gosh, this is luxury. Um, you know, Alexis and I um, did a, a workshop in person the other day and we went to this sort of like, you know, local family, you know, brew, uh, brewery and restaurant. And I went in and I was like, wow, the, you know, the bathroom is accessible and it has a changing table. That's wild. Like you'd never see that at a place that serves beers. Like that's, it's just totally bizarre. But we just don't make space to talk about those things in our daily lives. I feel that that's, that, that's, that's one way to, to be feminist is to just make space to talk about some of these issues. Oh, 100%. I think I am, well, I am where I am because of the people that, you know, have this conversation the same way the person that told me about oh you identify like there's been so many conversations that have been you know penny droppers like oh period poverty was one of them like of course you <laughs> like of course like you are I, so i volunteer with an association here that are um they're called homeless period belfast and it was like of course if you're homeless and then you have your period you know, and you can't afford, you know, that's worse. You know, like it's the kind of thing that whenever you're in a privileged position, you don't even grasp or like refugees that are fleeing their country. And it's like, yeah, like your period doesn't stop just because, you know, you're struggling. But you need to have the conversations. We need the visibility. We need, because otherwise, either we don't see them because they're away from us or we normalize it. Like, I think for me, like the sexism in Spain and the sexism in, in Northern Ireland, it's very, very different. So, for example, all the things that you're talking about, all the, you know, men sexually harassing you, telling you comments in the street, the feeling of like, oh, my God, there's a group of boys there. They're going to say something or, you know, that, that nerve in the stomach or calling your friend on the phone until you get home in case something happened to one of you. Those things for me were normal. I didn't, that's, that's just what it was. You know, it, it took me years of being like, that's so fucked up. You know, like it is, you don't even see it. I mean, you know, it's bad, you know, in theory, but it's not like well, it's part of life, you know, that's, that's my price. That's the price I pay for being a woman. It's almost like when I came here, the sex here is more about traditional and rigid roles, kind of like the women take their husband's name and, you know, there's the whole system is almost thought for like you become a mother, you stop your career or you're the one that give up, you know, that, that sense of there's a lot of separation. There's a lot of blue and pink and, you know, there's, it's very rigid stereotyping, which in Spain, I think we don't have. But in, again, in Spain, we have a lot of sexualization of girls. And, and it's just funny because the, the sexes that you're used to, you don't see. And then you go to another country and it's like, wow, why nobody's seeing this? And then you reflect about your own country. It's like, why didn't, we didn't see this? Um, so, yeah, I think those conversations are so powerful because they invite us to reflect and you know and a lot of the things that are not a me problem they're like a system problem and and being able to talk about it is definitely it's it's definitely feminist and it's definitely helpful i am nothing but grateful for those people that share their stories to me with me and and make me question my own experiences this reminds me of um, the smile thing. Alex and I were just talking about uh, this recently, um, about how just women, you know, at least in the U.S., definitely in 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 Colombia, you're sort of expected to walk around the street with a permanent smile on your face, or even in the workplace, you're supposed to be smiling or something, um, and. Uh, I just, uh, what you said 
you know, made me remember this conversation I had. It was somebody that was um, looking for donations for a particular um, abortion rights group. And it was a guy. And, you know, I talked to him, I, you know, I signed, you know, whatever it was that the petition and, and then as I was leaving, he's like, oh, you look so much better when you smile. And I crossed the street because I was in the middle of crossing the street. And I was like, okay, fine. I'm going to go back. I'm going to talk to him. I was like, hey, you know, do you have kids? And he's like, yeah, I have a daughter. I was like, how would you feel if, you know, some stranger, I was asking your daughter to smile. He's like, well, there's nothing wrong with that. I was like, well, would you ask, you know, somebody's son to smile? I was like, you know, have you thought about how, you know, our asking women and girls to be smiling is about objectification of women and like the work that you're doing right now with this petition is kind of going against what you're saying by asking me to smile. Like I'm somebody's daughter. Like, I don't, you know, I, I, <laughs> yeah, I signed your petition, but this is like a, a form of sexism. And he was floored. I mean, I was grateful that he listened, right? Because <laughs> I'll be honest, before that, I just kept, anytime somebody asked me to smile, I just turn around and be like, fuck you, asshole. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> so I was like, this is the first time that I like, literally, I was like, okay, I think this person would listen. So I'm just going to actually t- talk to them. And he's like, oh. Thank you. I never thought about that that way before. And, you know, people, other people being open to talking about it. I think, I think that's when we start, we start changing things. But, and I'm sure he, not only he is grateful, but I'm sure whenever he has experienced it in the future, you know what I mean? Like probably if he ever has that urge or if he ever hears somebody else doing it, you come to mind and it has probably inspire him to do the same for the next person you know I think once you see those things clearly it's very difficult to be continue to be part of the problem as in there's things that I used to do a lot as in comments about weight for example that once I've understood problematic of it not only I wouldn't do it anymore but if I see somebody doing it I'll be like look you know just want you to know that I used to do that too, but then somebody explained to me this and it makes sense because of that. So is that inspiration of like, oh, now I've learned this. I used to do this. So it's not about now I'm holier than anybody else. It's about, wow, I learned because somebody took the time to teach me and it's great that I can pay that back. And having been part of this domino effect in which we pass the learnings from a place of love, you know, I was at a event last summer <clears throat> where we had a specific trans and cis women space. And so you had to be, you know, one of one or more of, you know, trans female non-binary get into the space. And this guy, you once I explained it to him, he said. Oh, that's so great that they have a space for, and then he used a trans slur. And I was like, oh, okay. 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 The goal right here should not be to tell you how you're wrong, but to tell you the goal should not be to like tell you you're a bad person because you just did that thing, but to like educate you in a way that brings you in. And by the end of the conversation, he said, oh my gosh, thank you so much. I didn't realize that was a slur. Thank you for telling me so that I can avoid that in the future. I think people in general, if we, it's just the problem with that, and and I agree, and I try to keep that tone as much as possible, is that it ends up being the emotional labor of the victim to be the bigger person. And sometimes you have the space, and sometimes you don't. You are in that space in which it's like, look, I can't afford, and that's why I think the power of allyship is so important. Like. Sometimes as a woman, I'm like, look, I'm, I don't want to explain to you this again. I would like, you know, my husband or my friend that is a feminist to have this conversation because A, somebody will listen to him more sadly, and B, because I'm tired. I mean, it's, it's bad enough that I have to go through it, but then I have to also 
have my nicer and kinder and welcoming voice. And sometimes you have it in you, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you want to turn around and be like, look, fuck you, asshole, because that is what really your body's asking. So as as much as I a million percent agree with this is very valuable, it's brilliant when we have that space and that capacity to do it you know, with respect and to have those conversations and to challenge each other. The, the reality is that the more oppressed you are, and again, I'm very privileged and lucky that way, but the more you, you can't be expecting to also do all the emotional, physical energy labor to educate the others about, hi, this is how my existence is valid. Let me educate you with a smile on my face just for you to be called in. So, yeah. So whoever has the energy, please use it. But if you don't, you know what? <laughs> That's okay too. That's okay too. You know. Well, and then sometimes when you have the energy, right, to do this work, right? Sometimes it's also about like getting fairly compensated for the work as work, right? Yeah. So hundred percent. So I'm going to use that as a segue. A little bit. A little bit of a heavy-handed segue um, into talking about something that you do for work to do a lot of this advocacy. And um, when you, when you have the uh, ability to do it and that's, you are writing these books, right? Like Mika and Lolo, like um, childhood unlimited. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the process there and what that was like getting to a point where you, wanted to, were able um, to write these books and, and making that happen. So my Mika and Lolo book um, are different, I guess, because they are, for my kids, I wrote the first one when I was pregnant. I wrote the second just this last summer talking about consent because they're topics that I, I talk with my kids about. Um, but my real, the, the book that I feel, and I love them all, but the book that I feel like has capacity to make a big change is Childhood Unlimited, which is a book about how we parent beyond the gender bias. And, and it's a book in which I try to have those conversations that I was having with my friends, with my parents, with family members about my way to educate my kids and all those many hours of research um, all the things that I experienced firsthand, I wanted to have that conversation with as many people as possible. And writing this book allowed me to do so and to do it in a structured way. Um, again, I think this is a tool for whenever you don't have the space and you are tired of explaining and you can just say to somebody, you know, just read the book because it's very, again, it's non judgmental. It comes from a place of, Look, it's difficult. This is, you know, what society tells. But let's let me show you how present gender stereotypes are from the moment we're born. So it talks about neuroplasticity, gender stereotypes, clothes, toys, books, media, language, and then it tells why it's important and what can we do about it. So it's very practical as well. But um, it comes. It was born from the urge to do something like I feel like I have this information I feel like whenever I have these conversations with people it has a massive impact and I want to have you know how can I multiply this impact how can I bring this to many more families and and writing the book has allowed me to do so especially because I also got interviews with great experts so being able to share those voices that have taught me so much and, you know, especially keep recommending parents other things to do, parents or educators, like, oh, well, if you like this topic, why don't you just read and check and do this and just empower them to keep researching and to keep um, realizing that we can parent and beyond those strict rules of what gender is supposed to mean. Kind of reminds me of, why I started my blog when I started writing my blog was because I'd been having these conversations and was like, wait, maybe I should write all this down so that. Yeah. And 
and the the reality is that they are similar like you life is like with all these frequent asked questions i'm sure in your journey as trans you've got the million the same question asking a million times like so you're like oh maybe i could just write that and pass along so i don't have to go through all this all again and yeah i think we're not that different and the things that scare us and the things that we know and the things that we don't know and the things like what we want for our kids or what we want for society is not really that similar so it's good to be able to have a handy way to provide some answers or at least our perspective on them uh, yeah that's great what's the response been like well it's been good like some of it we just it's just really launch a month ago tomorrow is gonna be a month ago um so it's very new but some of the endorsement have been fantastic um the reviews are starting to come back and yeah it's oh, it's really exciting people are finding it very accessible which i wanted very conversational and thought-provoking and yeah i like somebody told me the other day that it was great because they were nodding a lot of the book like yeah yeah so there's a lot of reassurance but she said there were part that i was like oops i think she's talking about me here i definitely do that so i think if it gets to reassure you mostly and challenge you a bit um it's also doing its job so again it's about some people that will read this book or that are reading this book are very new in this whole thing and some people are very you know hardcore you know feminist and i am loving that the, the response is positive for you know in, in all the spectrum everybody seems to be getting something out of it and, and that is so exciting all right and with that we are going to go to a quick break we'll be back in just a moment after some announcements Hi everyone, this is Seth and I am one of the audio editors and volunteers here at UBP. The Unconscious Bias Project brings creative, accessible, evidence-based solutions for unintentional bias to academic, technological, governmental organizations, and beyond. We sustain a welcoming home for inquisitive and creative minds and encourage a growth mindset, working by the model of 0% guilt, 100% empowerment. Please subscribe or follow our Facebook and Instagram for the latest in events and how you can learn more and be involved. Also, take a look and check out our guest website and learn more. Look for that information in the description section of your podcast or on our website. everybody we're back now with Virginia Virginia one of the things that you mentioned um, before we started recording about childhood unlimited was that um, it's very intersectional just as you spoken earlier um, you know issues of of feminism uh, you know thinking about gender equality um, you know going beyond bias it does include trans and non-binary kids and you said something like, um, you know, you purposely didn't make the title. Let's, you know, guide for parents about not being biased against non-binary and trans kids. Um, <laughs> can, can you share a little bit about um, sort of like looking at your growth as an author to, you know, starting from Iken Lolo all the way to creating this sort of, you know, big you know, conversational, helpful guide for parents in a way that's like, oh, you know, this is a, this, a topic of, of gender and, uh, you know, of, uh, trans kids or, or, uh, understanding non-binary kids. It's just a part of the whole parenting thing. Can you, can you share a little bit about that? Yes. I think what I am excited about this book is that it will hopefully get to people that would never buy a book. I mean, this book is not about trans kids. It is also about trans kids, if, if it makes sense. I mean, it, it's a book that includes them because they're part of childhood. And it's a book that I wrote with for all the kids in, in mind. So it's not 
I mean, it talks specifically in a chapter um, about trans and non-binary kids and the same way it does about girls and boys. And there's there's like a small guide for people assuming that, you know, it, the book starts by like separate sex and gender. I'm referring to these and I'm referring to that. And there's a small guide. There's, But I think a lot of parents would not buy a book specifically about trans or even knowing maybe that it's because they everybody feels like oh that's not a topic that you know my kid is not trans so I don't need to know about this I will buy a book about it if I ever come across that it is a thing which I think is the wrong approach I think we all need to approach childhood uh, in an inclusive way so what we know is that we have children and what we know is that gender bias affects them no matter what. It, it affects them in a way or in another. But my approach is like we need to liberate kids from all those rules and we need to understand why that separation and that strict binary, you know, comes with. We pay a price for it. And I think we cannot have that conversation without having the conversation of and what happened with the kids that either are, you know, transgender or they're non-binary or or they're just not fitting in those boxes that we've made. And and it is a call to action to all of us as adults being a safer space for those kids. It might not be your kid. It might be your kid's friends, but if we all, you know, become those safer space and create those, yeah, that space and that safety and that knowledge and that respect and that compassion, it is a win for everybody. So I think that most parents that buy it, buy it because they have a girl or a son as far as they're aware and they are like oh I don't want my girl to be always surrounded by pink or I don't want my boy I want my boy to have more emotional and um, intelligence and I want to go beyond those things and I think the whole book itself is a wee a wee journey in which we come across at the end about okay well you know we've gone this far like let's go farther what happened next and how we keep including other children and why it's important for everybody that we do so i think that is it has a lot of potential because it will arrive to parents that otherwise would never think that's matter for them and some of those parents will have kids that are non-binary inevitably some of them might not but hopefully you know, they will be able to pass the message to others that do or to operate at that as that safe person. So, yeah, I think it has a lot of potential in that way. And, and that is good. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned, um, you know, parents being on this journey and I'm sort of feeling we have a journey theme. At least that's what I think. So looking back on your journey, starting out as uh, not identifying as a feminist to starting and growing the feminist shop to starting and growing, you know, as an author, um, educating kids and adults. Um, what would you say have been like has been one or maybe two lessons that you've learned along the way? So my two biggest lessons are all systems of privilege are interlinked and we all need to be aware of our own privilege and respond accordingly. I think I got into families because I felt aggravated and that opened the door to me for me to realize all the other instances in which I was in the winning side of it, which are probably a big majority. Um, so I think understanding intersectionality is so key. It's been by far my biggest learning and the one that has most shaped who I have become. And the other one is, yeah, it's about, I don't know, the power of anger mixed with love. I think I have a lot of anger in me and equal measure of love. So I think that is a winning combination as an activist. Whenever you manage to put those two together, um, 
in whatever theme and whatever topic, social topic that you're passionate about, I think that's where the magic happens. And that's where where I always try to activate in people, you know, a, a fair doses of anger. I think angers move us, but I think it has to be, you know, a company with the same same doses of love. Uh, what advice would you like to share with our listeners about talking about gender? I would say challenge yourself about, you know, what, check what makes you uncomfortable and ask yourself why. There's always something that makes us feel uncomfortable at some point, like, oh, I don't want my, you know, but this is like, there is a moment in which we resort to the, oh, we're different or, but that's the way it is, or, you know, that's nature, that's tradition, like try to unpack it just whenever you find yourself going to that, but that's the way it is. And you just want to, you know, just to stop going, just dig deeper. Like what happened? What's the story? Be curious about it. What is the story behind it? Who says, what is that coming from? How can this be, you know, nurture instead of natural? Um, how that plays in the larger scheme. So, yeah, I think um, it's difficult to have those conversations without being open to question those things because it's so present. Like the the whole stereotypes bias, it's so present literally up everywhere that it's quite difficult to get us, you know, just get us a bit farther and just to keep questioning questioning on why 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 so be curious whenever you're talking with people about uh, gender just be curious what it means for them where where it comes from what experiences would how is that perpetuated how the society you know is reinforcing those ideas where are they saying it in tv are they seeing this in books how is that you know explained in or sending a message through the clothes or you know like how it's everywhere and just just go a, a bit farther and just just stop to that uncomfort and just ask yourself why to change gears a little bit um as we're recording this there was a leaked uh supreme court opinion in the u.s um that appears to overturn the right to abortion access. Um, and so, you know, we're just really curious. You're in Ireland, which is expanding. Oh, wait, is this true? Hang on. You're in Northern Ireland. It's Ireland that just expanded. Oh, yeah. Well, Northern Ireland did it after. So Ireland did it first. Northern Ireland just did it. So, yeah. Same concept. So you're you're in Northern Ireland, and Ireland and North Ireland um, have been expanding access to abortion um, at the same time that the U.S. seems to be doubling down on restricting. Um, do you have any thoughts about the intersection of abortion access and gender equality, and your hopes for the future? Yes, and is it was a great victory. I was here. I was obviously already here by the time they managed to uh, repeal the eighth in the South. And then whenever the abortion rights happened in Northern Ireland, it was very emotional. There was lots of rallies, a lot of stories, heartbreaking stories. I mean, in Ireland, you were forced to give birth kids that you knew were going to die as soon as they were born. I mean, the, the cases, and I don't believe in separating good abortions from bad abortion not wanting a kid is a good abortion i don't care you don't need to give me the solid story for me to defend your right to whatever you want that said there were so many solid stories <laughs> i mean stories that like would break your heart and people criminalize and mothers criminalize because they would just get in abortion pills for their daughters I mean, awful stories, and and there was no, there was no limit. Like the, it was forbidden. It didn't matter. It was, you know, that was it. So, um, it was very emotional fighting for it. It was very emotional whenever it was achieved. A lot of 
conversations, argument, discussions in the middle. And America now has remind us all that we can't take anything for granted. It doesn't matter how basic your human rights are. It doesn't matter how much we claim that we're the first world and we know better and we are like, you know, leaders of wherever. We can't take our most human, most basic rights for granted. And that is really, really scary. Um, I don't think anybody, I mean, you know, this has been fought before and it'll be fight again and America will win again. You know what I mean? Like we are, there's no way, there's no going to be a battle for it and people are not going to just rest and let this happen. But that said, it is exhausting. And I think that is, you know, you almost feel like whenever you got here, there's no way back. You know, I know that that was the feeling whenever it happened here in Ireland, like, okay, every, it feels like it's a milestone we got here and that's something now we have. And I think the fear of what happened this week in America is that, no, it's not, you know, like, we can't even, like, you've, you've achieved this and we will fight to take it away from you. And I think that is... I think that was very heavy emotionally. I think that was exhausting for people everywhere because it was that reminder of no, you know, you we you you can't take things for granted. We'll fight you back. We'll fight you back and we won't let you have it. Yeah, I think it has because the world is very globalized, especially now with social media, especially in you know, English speaking countries. Yeah, it's been huge. I think it's been, you know, it's been really bad. And I I hope it's also been very empowering to see people fighting for it. And, and the, the camaraderie, it's have happened worldwide that we're here for you, even if we are an ocean away and your fight is my fight and your story is my story. There was always big, big exercise of sorority and sisterhood and people having each other's back and you know feeling making others feel heard and supported and applauded in their fights but uh but yeah big big step back it's been bad weeks i mean it's been bad weeks for feminism um but uh, yeah i mean i have hope and i know that this is not over and people will keep you know fighting and will get it and yeah there's there's no way that people are not going back and and we might have to go back temporary but it's temporary and you know we get there once and we'll get again and we'll protect this with our life that's that is exactly exactly the way to answer that question with hope with hope (laughs) and with that hope in our hearts To end our podcast, we give our guests a space where they can shout out someone special to them, a cause you want our listeners to pay attention to, um, or a space to plug any projects you have going on or any projects coming up. So go ahead. I obviously would like people to have a look at thefeministshop.com. And, you know, it doesn't mean like you have to buy anything. Please don't buy anything that you don't need. But um but have a look at the free resources, at the content, and keep us in mind for future gifts and know that we take ethics super seriously. Um, obviously, my book, Childhood Unlimited, um, I am delighted with people getting it. So if there's anything about this that sparked your attention, grab your coffee, con- uh, your copy and contact me on social media or send me an email and, you know, just check with me. I'm super approachable and I love having this conversation with parents. Uh, my children's book, Mika Lolo, they're bilingual and therefore progressive points of view. So one about gender stereotypes and one about consent. And any public speaking or workshop in schools, I do loads of those. So yeah, if there's anything at all, just give me a shout and I would love to collaborate or work with you or um, just have a chat. 
Thank you so much, Virginia. It was an absolute pleasure, absolutely illuminating to have you on the pod. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can find more information and donate at unconsciousbiasproject.org. Dr. Lynette Mara, she, her, and Alexis Crone, she, her, are your host. Seth Beckman, he, they, is your editor. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to this podcast and follow us. We can be found on Facebook at Unconscious Bias Project, Twitter at UBP underscore STEM, LinkedIn, Instagram, or join our mailing list. UBP is a fiscally sponsored project of the Social Good Fund, a tax-deductible 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you wish to sponsor us, please contact us in the Contact Us tab at unconsciousbiasproject.org.